And as you're seated, if you have your Bibles, uh, if you'll turn with me to Romans 7. We're going to be in uh, Romans chapter 7 this morning. And as you turn, if it's possible, I want you to think back to 1977. So the year is 1977, polyester is in, big hair is in. Uh, there's a strange um, both pessimism and optimism in the country. Uh, it's the year of the 25-day power outage in New York. Gas prices are going through the roof. There's inflation. There's tension with uh, Russia and the Cold War. Um, it's the year that we find the king of rock and roll, dead in his uh, home. But then there's also this unique kind of energy because in January, two California kids uh, released this console uh, called the Atari 2600 where you could actually play games on your television. And they were selling it for $199. And no one thought, there's no way people will pay $200 to play. Their two flagship games was there was a ball and a snake would chase it. Or you had this game called Pong where you had one line here and one line here in a circle. And... <laughs> $199, nobody's going to pay that to play games on a television. Now, that actually was overshadowed uh, in uh, June, because on June 5th, two other California kids released their computation machine. That you couldn't play any games, but you could write code, and it seemed like it could do magical things. But then they, char they were charging $2,638 for this box. Who is going to spend that much money for this computational machine? And then in May of that month, there was this strange, hard-to-classify science fiction adventure movie that was coming out and it was smashing all of the box office records to date as it kind of culminated with this like X-wing thing that blows up this Death Star. And so there's all types of unique energy, but perhaps one of the most significant things was happening under the surface in the fall at the University of Alabama. There was a sophomore who saw a freshman and uh, she captured his eye and he asked her for a date. She said, no, but you can come to our campus ministry. Not sure which one she was a part of. Perhaps it was crew. Come to our campus ministry. And uh, now he was an intelligent atheist who had no time for this kind of nonsense. But if she'll be there, I guess he'll go. His long hair, still a hippie kind of wannabe, was an English major, so was reading all of, uh, he wanted to talk about Albert Camus and uh, Jean-Paul Sartre and was wrestling with all this existential angst about what does it mean to exist and be alive. And then at the campus uh, meeting, whoever stood up and talked, he was completely un unimpressed by this guy, what's he talking about. But then they started to read, and just kind of at random, part of the Bible reading was from Romans 7, and this is what he heard. So the trouble is not with the law, for it is spiritual and good. The trouble is with me, for I am all too human, a slave to sin. I don't really understand myself, for I want to do what is right, but I don't. 
Instead, I do what I hate. But if I know what I'm doing is wrong, this shows that I agree that the law is good, so I'm not the one doing wrong. It's sin living in, in me that does it. And I know that nothing good lives in me that is in my sinful nature, and I want to do what's right, but I can't. I want to do what is good, but I don't. I don't want to do what is wrong, but I do it anyway. But if I do what I don't want to do, and I'm not really the one doing what's wrong, it's sin living in me that does it. And I've discovered this principle of life that when I want to do what's right, inevitably I do what's wrong. I love the law with all of my heart, but there's another power in me that is at war with my mind. And this power makes me a slave to sin that's still working in me. Oh, wretched man that I am. Who will set me free from this life that's dominated by sin and death? Thanks be to God. The answer is in Jesus Christ our Lord. So you see how it is in my mind I really want to obey God's law. But because of my sinful nature, I am a slave to sin. And there in that moment, he was captured by this word. And he looked at her and said, who is that? Who is writing that? That I can resonate with that more than anything else I've read in any other place. Who is that? And that began, that moment began something for, uh, his name was Alan Jacobs, and he went on to teach at, at Wheaton for 30 years, one of my favorite uh, literature professors, and teaches at Baylor's honor program. But in that moment, he encountered something in Romans 7 that was more real than anything he encountered anywhere else. And I wonder if you take a heavenly perspective on history, you look back and think, what were the most significant events happening in 1977? Or you look even now, what are the most significant events happening now? See, where we are in our series is we're doing a series all year on how do you experience the transforming power of the gospel. And if you're going to experience it, first we saw that you uh, have to know you've been created in love and called for a purpose. And then now the next thing you have to know is how sin seeks to bind and break you. It wants to bind you and break you. And the last couple weeks, we've seen how once sin entered into the world, there's a cascading effects of brokenness relational brokenness. First, our relationship with God is broken. And then our relationship with ourselves, we're internally broken. And then that funnels out into our relationship with others and out in the world. And what we looked at last week in Psalm 51 is how can our relationship with God be restored? That ultimately sin is a broken relationship with him. And then what we're going to look at this morning is how can our relationship with ourselves internally be restored? And I think Romans 6 and 7 is probably one of the best places in the Bible that can draw you into that internal conflict about how sin as a power is trying to, to break you. So when we look at Romans 6, Romans 7, just kind of broad context. And in one sense, Romans 1 through 4 is dealing with the problem of our relationship with God is, is broken. We are unrighteous in his sight. So how can we stand? How can we be made righteous in his sight? And Paul's going to celebrate. He loves the gospel because it's the power of God to all who believe, Jew first, then Gentile. And, uh, but the first thing is that God's wrath has been revealed against all of our unrighteousness. And that filters out to everyone. And it culminates in coming under the law. And now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to all who are under it so that the whole world is held guilty, accountable, mouth shut. 
So everyone stands uh, guilty, and we got to, how can we come back into his presence? And then he celebrates that through Christ, a way has been made. And so we can enter back in. A righteousness has been revealed that comes through faith in Christ as he was put forward as a sacrifice of atonement. And so now God can be both just and the justifier. So we celebrate what's called justification, which means legally we now stand righteous in God's sight and can be brought back in. So one through four is dealing with that massive problem. But that's not the only problem. When sin came in the world, now we have to deal with, all right, so the relationship with God can be put right, but what about the relationship with ourselves? And in, in Romans 5 through 8, it begins, all right, therefore, uh, now that we've been justified by faith, we have peace with God. So we're back into God's presence. But we have to remember that when sin came into the world through one man, then death came in after it. So sin comes in, and then death comes in. And you can see what now we're talking about how sin kind of enters in. And Liz, pull up that first graph, if you can. Pull up the first graph. So this is, this is a graph of the times the word sin is used in Romans. So look, it starts in chapter 5, and it just spikes. Look how much sin, 5, 6, 7, 8, sin is. Sin has entered in. Then pull up the next one. This is death. And so sin is the one in the background, and that's death in the foreground. And see how they're always parallel. Sin comes in, brings death. Sin, death. And then now we've got to figure out, how do we deal with this? Now pull up the next one. This is the time. That's the spirit. How many times the word spirit is used in Romans? So now there's this battle between sin has come in, but then the spirit comes. And so let's look. And what we're actually going to do, if you have a bulletin, we're going to reverse the order. So we're going to start at the end and look at the universal struggle. And then we're going to move backwards through chapter 7. So it's not quite, I don't know when Michael Jackson started moonwalking. I don't think it was 77, maybe. But we'll, we'll, we'll moonwalk through the passage. So let's start at the back. And 14 through 25, this is uh, highlighting the universal struggle. That's the passage that I just read that Alan Jacobs heard at that campus ministry and so arrested him and shook him because it painted this picture that anyone can sympathize with. You know, in the history of interpretation, Romans 7, this part is one of the most controversial passages in church history about, oh, who is it talking about? Is this Paul talking about his life before uh, he became a Christian afterwards? And there's, there's, it's such a dense, rich, complex passage. But in many ways, that kind of whole question misses the point. Because I think what Paul is doing is he's describing an experience that he knew very well, but that every one of us can sympathize what is it like to desire and want something and then just know you can't do it? You know, we've been <clears throat> all week at breakfast. I read this passage over and over to our kids to get their take. And I was, even, I was amazed how even from 10 to 4, every one of them can sympathize with the experience of, of, of not wanting something to happen, but you still can't, you can't control it. Like, I don't want to be afraid, but I can't not be afraid. I don't want this, but I do want to do this, but I can't stop myself. We all know what this experience is like. And now as we go through it, the first time I read through it, I read through it in the NIV, because that's what he would have heard. Now let's go back. I want to read it. 
Let me read it. Uh, Liz, can you pull up the New Living Translation? I've been really helped this week uh, contrasting the New Living Translation and the ESV because they both give you different elements because such a dense, uh, rich passage. So hear it, hear it, just hear it, and I want you to kind of hear it and do you, do you feel it? So the trouble is not with the law, for it is spiritual and good. The trouble is with me, for I am all too human, a slave to sin. I don't really understand myself, for I want to do what's right, but I don't do it. Instead, I do what I hate. And then skip on down, go to the, go to the next, skip on down to 18. And I know that nothing good lives in me. That is in my sinful nature. I want to do what's right, but I can't. I want to do what's good, but I don't. I don't want to do what is wrong, but I do it anyway. I mean, can you sympathize with someone who speaks like that? Now let's look at the, pull it up uh, if we have it in the ESV, because I want you to see, because the ESV does a beautiful job. The NLT really gets you into the emotion of the passage. And then the ESV does a good job of showing you how Paul is structuring and the ordering of the passage, because he's very intentional in what he's going to do. And there's always these, these fours. It's four, 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 now, so. Reason, reason, reality, so what? For, for, for we know that the law is spiritual, but I'm under the flesh, sold under sin. For I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want, but the very thing I hate. Now, if I do what I don't want to do, I agree with the law that is good. So now, so, it's no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. See the pattern in the next, so starting in 21. Or 18, I mean. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I don't want is, is what I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I don't want to do, it's no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. So I find that it to be a law that when I, when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. There's this movement, four, 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 now, so. And then in 22 through 25, he abbreviates, four, I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. And he skips the four, but this is, or the now, now, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from the body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So, then I, then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. So don't you just see the, the, the conflict, the internal wrestling going back and forth on the negative side. Like, here's the, here's the things I don't want to do. I don't want to do these things. I don't like this. I'm sold under sin. But then the positive, like, I know that the law is good. I delight with it. I want this. It's just a man who's divided. And sin has come in, and he's, he's torn him in two. And do you know that? Do you feel that? You know, what happens in your life that will bring that out so you feel that? Where you say, ah, oh, I want to do what it's, what's right, but I, I can't. I want to do what's good, but I don't. I don't want to do this, but I do. You know, what are the things, you know, you wake up on Saturday morning and you have every intention of making this a wonderful day for the family. And then what happens that causes it all to derail? 
And how quickly can it derail? Or, you know, you have every intention of losing weight or sleeping more or being kinder or coming to church more. And then you know, every uh, January we go through the cycle, new year, new you, for one week. And then the old you's back. Like, why? Why is this? Or maybe you can feel that in, in relational context where you, you feel that there's a relationship slipping away and you reach out and grasp and you know you're acting too controlling and you know you're pushing them away and you don't want to do this, but uh, you don't know how to be any other way than just overbearing and you can't help it. You're doing the thing you don't want to do. And what's happening is the thing you don't want to happen. Or maybe it's just some silly side comment that you hear at work and you take it personally because you feel exposed and attacked that you're not adequate or competent. And then you maybe you respond in anger and you get angry and you can feel it rising up and you can feel yourself lashing out and you don't want to be angry but you can't stop yourself. Or maybe you feel yourself withdrawing and you know you're doing it but you can't stop it. I don't want to do what's wrong, but I do it anyway. This is a universal struggle. We all know what it's like, and it happens so often. I mean, how many of you really want to be just addicted to your phones and scrolling them all the time? You don't want to do that, but it's like physical crack where you just can't stop. I mean, we're, we're addicts. Why? I mean, teenagers, you don't want to be a zombie, but... You are. You become a zombie just looking and staring. We don't want to be this way. You know you don't want to compulsively shop or compulsively look at porn, but something just takes over and you do the things you don't want to do. So why? You know, what we see here, this is the universal struggle. And one of the challenges with this passage that really conflicts to our current age, because probably the last 50 years, the dominant gospel in the culture is trying to deal with that sense of fracturing. And the way we think we can heal it is through an elevation and exaltation of positive self-esteem. You know, all of the things that are going in our world about things like, um, you know, affirming things and different types of positivity is trying to feel that, fill that hole that we all feel. So what do you do with that fracturing? This is why it's not helpful to try and be true to who you are. Because if you're honest, you don't know who you are. Who is the real you? The one with the desires to do good or the one who can't do it? You know, we're fractured. Who's the real you? And so at the end of the chapter, Paul cries out, he knows, I need a rescuer. Who will rescue me? Who will deliver me? Oh, this wretched man that I am, he feels it. But then where can we get help? Let's actually moonwalk. Let's go back a little bit and let's highlight a little more. All right, where does the problem come from? Because if we were created in love and called for a purpose and all the world was good, like where does this fracturing, like what's its root? And you look at verses 7 through 13, they set up the problem in such a powerful way. Let's key in on verse 8 and verse 11. Look at verse 8, but sin seizing an opportunity through the commandment produced in me all kinds of covetousness. So sin is this force. It's a power. Look at verse 11. 
for sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment. Same phrase, repeated. That's what sin is, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me. And then through it, it killed me. So this little section in Romans 7, I think, is one of the most profound um, analyses of the power of the way sin operates as a principle in power. And just look at verse 11. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me, and then killed me. And you could see that, remember, a couple weeks ago in Genesis 3. That's exactly how Satan uh, struck, uh, struck Adam and Eve. Just what we saw. Notice sin is not something just kind of negative. It's a positive, active force. It's not simply the absence of good. It's an active evil that is seeking to still kill and destroy. And notice what sin does is it hijacks. It takes God's good gifts and hijacks them and turns them against us. And one of the things that's remarkable here is because Paul, his whole tension is that sin for the Jew has taken God's good gift of the law. And he even says in verse 12, the law is holy. It is righteous. It is good. The law, oh, how I love the law. And it is my delight because it is God's character uh, mediated to us. It pictures uh, how God, who God is and how we're supposed to live in a world uh, to bring flourishing. The law is good. But sin is so powerful that it can take it and hijack it and even turn that against us. And it's pretty scary if you think about if sin's powerful enough to hijack the law, think about what it can do with other lesser good gifts like food or um, sexuality or money or ambition. Uh, It can take anything and hijack it, turn it against us. And then notice what it does. Sin has it operate. It deceived and then destroys. So that's its pattern. When it tries to enter in, it deceives. And I just wonder if Satan's favorite tactic for deception is God's word. Because he starts, "It, it deceived me in relation to the law. So even in the garden, what does Satan use to hijack? He, he, he hijacks God's commands. And then when he was going toe-to-toe with Jesus in the temptation, the second temptation, he tries to hijack one of the, the word of God to Jesus. And then here he's hijacking, sin is hijacking the law and twisting it. So that's one way he deceives But other way he deceives, he'll deceive us by plunging us into despair. So we think things are worse than they really are. He can deceive you by um, flaming your pride. So you think you're much better than you really are. Paul's going to hit that in chapter 12 when he says, uh, he tells them, don't think more highly of yourself than you ought. And that's the way he deceives us. I think he deceives us about the real nature of sin. We believe that it's a pathway to life and joy and freedom. That's how he pushes it. But it always brings death, always destroys. Sin, it deceived me, and then it killed me. What does it kill? It kills my peace, kills my love, kills my joy, kills my hope. This is the tyranny of sin that it brings death. And so that's why Paul is crying out, O wretched man that I am. But the beautiful thing about this passage is that's not all he cries. He also cries out, thanks be to God. So what's, what's the hope? See, if, the, if we see how powerful sin is, but there's another power 
that's even greater, that can, uh, that can overcome it. And so much of the movement in Romans, uh, look in, in 7, verse 1, do you not know? I had a preacher that I loved, he said, the movement of Romans is no be do. And I said, that sounds like a Star Wars droid. <laughs> no be do. You know. Do you not know? You have to know. Something is true. You have to know what is true. And that true, what's true tells you who you be. It's know this, tells you who you be, and then you do. And so there's something, if we're going to combat the, the effects of sin, there's something we have to know. And look at verse 1 through 6. What is it we need to know? See, you spent so much time painting. You have to know that in Christ you now stand righteous in God's sight. You've been justified. And then 5 through 8 is all about now in Christ you've been united to the risen Christ and you're indwelt by the Spirit. You have to know this. If you don't know this, then you're always going to fail and fall. But you have to know what it means that in Him you are united to the risen Christ and you're indwelt by the Spirit. You're in Christ, and His Spirit is in you. Look in 7.1. Do you not know, brothers, for I'm speaking to those of you who know the law, that the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives? For a married woman is bound by the law to her husband while he lives, but if her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. Accordingly, she will be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is alive. But if her husband dies, she is free from that law. And if she marries another man, she is not an adulteress. Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law, through the body of Christ, so that you may belong to another to him who has been raised from the dead in order that you may bear fruit for God. For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive so that we serve in the new way of the spirit and not in the old way of the written code. And you see the great privilege that he's, he's highlighting. Let's meditate and focus. Look, look at just verse 4. Likewise, brothers, sisters, you have died to the law through the body of Christ so that you may now belong to another. Did you hear the metaphor he's using? He's using a marriage metaphor where he said you at one time were married to, to this, this other guy. Now there's been a death and now you're married to someone new. And you now have this great privilege. And look what comes with this great privilege. This is a new life. The old has died and the new has come. You know, Christianity is not just a minor tweaking to behavior. It's a whole new life. The old dies and the new comes. And then you have this new relationship. You're not under sin's tyranny that brings to death anymore. You now are under the reign of grace. One of the themes that runs all throughout 5 through 8 is we can be under two reigns. There's a reigning power of sin and death, and there's the reign of grace. And he says you've been transferred from one kingdom into the other, and now you have a new relationship. You're under the reign of grace, and you, you have a new purpose. Your purpose is to bring forth fruit for God. You now bring forth the fruits of the Spirit, not the fruits that lead to death, but the fruits of the Spirit. In the context of marriage, this is you bring forth spiritual children. You bring forth the fruits of holiness. And then you have this new power. See that in verse 6? We now serve in the, the new way of the Spirit. 
This is the first time that Paul is introducing that idea of flesh. Sark's flesh, the body, our physical or spirit. Are we uh, flesh or spirit? But then the whole metaphor that he's using is now you've been united to Christ. You, you've been joined to him. You're married to him. You have a new, a new husband. And it's worth just pausing. Like, what does that mean? To be married to Christ, united to him. It means your, your old husband, you weren't in Adam, were married to sin and death. And it used to terrorize you. It used to torture you and beat you. And what sin wants to do is fan the flame of shame in your life. But you've died to that relationship and you have a new husband now. A husband who gave his life to love you and cherish you and nourish you. And it's such a powerful metaphor. And I just wonder, you know, every one of us can easily uh, uh, resonate with Paul's, oh, wretched man that I am. But can we so easily resonate that now I am not my own, but I belong to another? What is my only hope, my only comfort in life and death that I am not my own, but I belong body and soul to my Lord? We've been married to him. And if you're a Christian, what it means, the greatest truth about you, what you have to know more than anything else is you have to know that you're united to him in faith. You are his bride. And what that means is now his name is your name. And then what is his name? He has been given a name that is above every other name. And at one day, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess the glory of his name. And his name is now your name. So why are you downcast, O oh my soul? Trust in God. Look to the lifter of your head. His name is your name. His place is your place. Where is he now? He's seated at the right hand of the Father in victory. His place is your place. That's what Paul wants to celebrate in Ephesians 1 and 2. We are united to him in the heavenly places. We are with him. His name is our name. His place is our place. His privileges are now our privileges. We have access to his Father. We now have his angels who are ministering servants who, who serve us. One day we will rule and reign with him. His name is our name. His privileges are our privileges. His place is our place. His possessions are our possessions. Paul runs this theme of his riches. Do you know the riches of his kindness, the riches of his grace, the riches of his mercy, the glorious riches that are now yours in him? And with this husband, do you know his provision and his protection? Peter says, in him we have everything we need for life and godliness. All this is yours. And how does it come? It comes as we repent of our sins and we have faith to trust in him. You know, I think as you look back from heaven's perspective on history, I have a feeling that the heavenly host of angels were not lining up to see Star Wars on its opening weekend. But you know what they were celebrating? They were celebrating when that college kid saw his own sin in the word and repented of it and reached out to his Christ in faith. From their perspective, the most important thing that happened that year is all the people who cried out to him. And from their perspective, the most important thing that could happen this week is not anything that happened on Tuesday, but it could be everything that's happening today as his word is going forth. And people are crying out to him. 
So as we go through Romans 7, you know, the way we, we fight is not to escape into a fantasy world, but we try and go further up, further in. This is what we know. And then notice what he says. How do you get in? Um, in verse 4, we belong to another, or it's through the body of Christ, our union with Christ. Every week, one of the reasons we celebrate communion every week is to remind us this is a physical, tangible expression that we've been united to him. Just like food becomes united to our body and in marriage, spouses become united to one another. We become united to him. So as we do, and I just want you to think, what is, if you're a, a Christian, what is true of you ultimately as you stand before God, holy and righteous? You've been united to the risen Christ, dead, buried, raised to his victory. You're indwelt by the Spirit and have the hope of glory. And if you're not a Christian this morning, he stands wide beckoning you to come. Come to me, all you who are weary, heavy laden. Come to me who know the cry of, oh, wretched man that I am. And his invitation is through his grace, you can also know the cry of thanks be to God who has saved me through Jesus Christ, our Lord. On the night that he was betrayed, he took the bread and he broke it. And he said, this bread represents my body broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me.